Welcome to another episode of Occupied Thoughts, podcast of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is Friday, March 11th. I'm very happy to be here with Peter Beinart, who is obviously a well-known author and columnist and also a fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. So welcome, Peter. Thanks. So Peter, I asked you to come on Occupied Thoughts today to talk about Ukraine, Russia, Ukraine, and Israel, Palestine. And for folks who follow the the Occupied Thoughts podcast, this comes on the heels of a podcast I did a few days ago with Yusuf Munayer, specifically looking at the different treatment of the whole concept of boycotts, divestment, and sanctions as protest, and how it's viewed differently in these two contexts. What I wanted to talk to you about, Peter, today, you wrote a piece for Jewish Currents. Um, Folks should look it up at the Jewish Currents website. The headline is Justifications for Destroying a People. Um, And and you raise some, you you crystallize some things that I've, I've seen other people pointing at and talking about, but I think you crystallized it better than anyone has and really, really talked it through. So that's what I wanted to really focus in on today. Um, so just to set this conversation off, I'm going to quote the key sentence from your, from your article that sets us all into gear, which is, so in both cases, this is Putin talking about Ukraine and Israel and how it frames the Palestinians. You say, quote, in both cases, this three-part claim, and that's the key, the three parts, they are, that a neighboring people is not really a people, one, that it, that people is controlled by foreign foes, and number two, that the same people seeks your extermination, and that it is this three-part claim that justifies aggression and the brutal denial of human rights. So you want to maybe start taking that apart and starting with the claiming that a people is not really a people. Um, and just com- contrasting the two cases of Russia over the Ukraine and Israel dealing with Palestinians. Right. So thanks. So if you look at Vladimir Putin's uh, statements, this famous kind of now infamous essay he wrote last year called On the Historical Unity of Russians and Ukrainians, and then the speeches he's given in the lead up to this invade, this full scale invasion of Ukraine. One of the things he says again and again is that um, Ukrainians are not a separate people, not a separate nation, um, that um, they're really Russians. Um, um, and um, uh, and for various, they've, it's, the Ukrainianness has been uh, uh, invented, he even says, against the will of most people who are most so-called Ukrainians. Um, and I think there's a um, similarity here you can see with a kind of longstanding uh, way in which Israeli leaders and pro-Israeli commentators have said that the Palestinians are an invented people, that they're not really Palestinians. They're Arabs who happen to be in this place that the British called Palestine, um, but they're not, but, they, but they're actually, they're, they're, not an, they're not an independent nation. Um, uh, the Golda Meir talked this way, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu in a book that I quote a bit, this book he wrote called A Durable Peace, goes into great detail about this. Now there is an important, there is a difference um, between the, the Russian case and the Israeli case. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, that they're exactly the same. The, in the Russian case, the claim is that the, the Ukrainians are Russians. Um, in the Israeli case, the claim is that not that Palestinians are Israelis or Jews, but that they are just generic Arabs. Um, and I think that has separate different consequences in the sense that I think Putin's vision is essentially to dominate and kind of absorb Ukraine into greater Russia. The, the Israeli, be, 
on the Israeli side, by contrast, the notion that Palestinians are just generic Arabs, I think, has the undercurrent that, well, if they're just generic Arabs, they could just as well live somewhere else in the Arab world. So it has a kind of an expulsionist undertone, as opposed to a kind of, you could say, an absorptionist undertone. So those are two differences. But in both cases, um, it is a way of uh, denying that this other group of people has the right to control their fate because, uh, as a collectivity, because if they're not a real collectivity, they don't have the right to make collective decisions about their own fate. Well, and, and I, I think it's important that you highlight the difference because we both know that the first argument anyone makes when they hear an argument they don't like on Israel-Palestine is, well, you can't compare those things, they're different. And obviously right. the, these are different. I think when you talk about the, the sort of collective will, I mean, especially in a moment we're talking a lot about things like international law, the question of who gets a right to self-determination. Um, denying a people, peoplehood is part of denying them a people's right to self-determination. So I think that's that's a really critical parallel there. Right. And the other thing I would say, I mean, I think part of what makes this the whole this whole thing so kind of absurd, if you look at it as a historian, is that all national identity is invented. Right. I mean, I mean, all of it is essentially the the process of, of a national identity emerges based on a set of, of myths and stories that a group of people tell themselves about a certain set of experiences. Sometimes those stories bear some resemblance to historical fact. Oftentimes they bear only slight resemblance. But in some sense, the, the point is that if Ukraine, the, in some ways, the answer is, of course, yes, Ukrainians and Palestinians are an invented people, just like every other people. Right. So the, but 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 this language essentially creates a kind of hierarchy. Right. And I think it's in that hierarchy that then gives you the right. Then you can take the right to then basically impose your will. Right. I also I'm just listening to you. I'm thinking about a distinction that is implicit in in both of these cases, that peoplehood is something that is is genetic. There's a, there's the, the peoplehood by blood, right? You are, mm -hmm. you are Russians at heart. So you are Arabs as I mean, Americans, American peoplehood is, is citizenship. It is, it is a national sense of identity. It is, it is the, it is a very different kind of identity. Um, it's almost a framing that suggests that an identity that is not, you know, discernible in the DNA of a person is an illegitimate identity. Right, right. And look, the Palestinian story, you know, uh, uh, Timothy Snyder, the historian at Yale, who's been doing great work on Ukraine, you know, has this gave this lecture a couple weeks ago called U Ukraine, a normal, uh, normal nation. And I think one could say the same thing about Palestinians, which is to say the British, the, the Ottoman Empire was carved up. A territory called Palestine was created next to Jordan and Lebanon and Syria and Iraq. These were artificial distinctions. National identities emerged around them and became real, just in the way Nigerian identity or Kenyan identity or Indonesian identity, these things became real, right? So if if, if Palestinian identity is, is unreal because it was, it was a response to the creation of a colonial boundary, well, that's the way national identity has worked for large works for large swaths of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to move on to the second um, element, which you talked about, the controlled by foreign foes. Um, this one is really interesting to me because it's something that is, I think a lot of folks are not aware of how big a role this plays in Israel's um, pressure on the Palestinians. So can you talk about that? 
Yeah. So again, to start with Putin again, what, what Putin says, well, if the Ukrainians are not really Ukrainians and actually maybe don't even want to be Ukrainians, then why do we have this problem? Right. And so his answer is that basically that there have these foreign adversaries that have basically kind of invented, created and kind of manipulated and weaponized Ukrainianness, which only really exists to be a way of of uh, attacking Russia. And so, of course, for Putin, it's really the West and the United States. So Putin really, when he talks, he never really gives, he doesn't give a lot of agency to Ukrainians. It's always really that the hidden hand dominating everything is the United States. If you look at Israeli official discourse about the Palestinians, you tend to see something similar, that for many decades, what you find is that the, the Palestinians are basically just putty in the hands of the Arab governments. The Arab countries have always wanted to destroy Israel. Yitzhak Shamir, I quoted in the piece, basically says they used to try to drive us into the sea. Now they have this new strategy. They're going to talk about self-determination for the Palestinians. Um, uh, and, and this is, again, something Netanyahu talks about. Netanyahu said the PLO was just a Trojan horse for the Arabs. Um, and I think more recently, because that trope doesn't work as well, because it's so clear that most of the Arab governments don't really want to destroy Israel, they've accommodated themselves, that you see a version of this vis-a-vis -vis Iran. So as I quote in the piece, Naftali Bennett likes to talk about Gaza as one of the tentacles of Iranian power, right? So it's essentially like, it's not like the Palestinians have their own agency here, their own national struggle, their own desires. It's basically they're being controlled by an outside force and the Palestinians are just some another mechanism for this outside force, in this case, Iran, to try to, to, try to destroy Israel. It's it's also interesting, and maybe we maybe we will see it and haven't seen it yet. But I think there's we've seen it a little bit with Russia already. The degree to which Israel has used a similar similar argument to delegitimize civil society, Palestinian mm. civil society, mm. yeah. and international civil society, in effect arguing that human rights organizations, yes. um, humanitarian yes. organizations, are part of sort of a foreign a foreign anti-Israel or anti-Semitic conspiracy. There's there's an entire organization called NGO Monitor that exists just to, just to argue this. Yes, it, no, it's it's a really good point, and and it's interesting. And I think there's also you see this in the way the BDS movement is talked about, as if it's when I, I find when people criticize the BDS movement, they they rarely acknowledge that it's a Palestinian movement. It's it's always as if kind of it's actually the agency must be from some crazy leftists in Norway or Berkeley or something, right? Who are basically for their own reasons, maybe probably because they're anti-Semitic, they've kind of like they're using the Palestinians to do this, right? But it's it's another way. I mean, I think what all these things have in common is they're a way of, of dehumanizing people, um, kind of er erasing them conceptually. And I think once you do that, then it, then it becomes easier to, to do actual acts of physical violence. Right. And, and in addition to erasing them conceptually, you're also now creating a conspiracy against you, which is something yes. to rally people around. Exactly. Um, the last in your in your trifecta of, of arguments that are used is that the argument that the that your foe seeks your your extermination, um, which is a very potent argument. What we're doing is preemptive self-defense, perhaps. Can you talk about what that looks like in these two cases and how it is similar and how it might be different? Yeah. So you've noticed that, you know, Putin talks about Ukraine as a neo-Nazi regime that's committing genocide against um, Russian speakers. Right. Um, you know, and as many people have been pointed out, there's 
levels of insanity there, right? You have a, a Jewish Russian speaking president among other things. Um, but as you know very well, the trope of uh, Palestinians as Nazis is also is something that is very, very, very common in, in kind of Israeli official discourse and other kinds of pro-Islam discourse. Just the terms that if, again, if one lives in this space, one will have heard again and again and again terms like Auschwitz borders if Israel returns to the 67 lines or Judenrein if, if settlers leave the West Bank, which is the term for Jew-free Germany. Um, uh, and so this is, um, uh, you know, this whole building up of the figure of the of the Mufti of Jerusalem, the Palestinian leader is the mastermind of the Holocaust, the guy who gave Hitler the idea, which something Netanyahu said. And I think that, and, and you also hear it constantly with Hamas, right? That Hamas is a genocidal organization, not just towards Israel, but towards all Jews, right? And I think they're very, very legitimate criticisms of Hamas, things that Hamas has done that I disagree with completely, and even that I would consider war crimes. But, 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 but to build up, the, but in, again, Palestine. I think the Palestinian national movement, the Palestinian movement. Uh, um, for independence um, in the face of first Britain and, and also the Zionist movement is actually very normal. It has most of the same features. The, in some ways, the difference of it is that it still hasn't come to fruition, whereas many of those other nationalist movements got a state a long time ago. But to, to turn it into a Nazi and genocidal movement, right, is to take it outside of that normal frame completely, right? And there, there of course, to say, well, yeah, sure, most colonized peoples should have the right to their own state, the right to have citizenship in the country in which they live. But if they're Nazis and, 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 and you know, want to be genociders, then we can't allow that, right? And so that, that it takes Palestinians and it basically gives you a way of saying, well, they don't then deserve all these other, the rights that, that other people would naturally deserve, individual and collective. And I think that's, again, one of the things that you see Putin doing here. And again, Timothy Snyder has has written about this very powerfully. And he says that that when Putin accuses the Ukrainians of genocide, then that becomes a justification for his own atrocities. Right. Because, again, if you're you know, you see this in the Israeli discourse all the time. If you're really fighting the Nazis, if you're really in the equivalent of the Warsaw Ghetto, then you can do anything you need to to survive. Right. It, you know, you need to blow up, a, a you know, bomb a, a, a high rise building or whatever. Right. You have no choice. And so I think that one of the we see the similarities. And I think one of the reasons that I think the Ukrainian case is so powerful is that um, we many, many Americans, including Americans who have are not engaged in the Israel-Palestine question or have little sympathy for the Palestinians, see through these things so clearly. Um, yet they get stuck um, uh, uh, on on the on similar things when it comes to Israel-Palestine. Either they are just paralyzed, they don't know what to think, or actually they buy into these kind of things. And I think that I I so much wish that some of these writers who are writing so powerfully cutting through Putin's dehumanizing propaganda might take a moment at some point to turn their gaze to Israel-Palestine and they would see many of the same things. And I think it would we would help us so much. Um, uh, and and um, But anyway, that was kind of the work that I was trying to do in this essay. I'm curious if you, you know, the, the essay I think is very powerful in, in drawing these parallels, which I, I, I think are quite, quite clear and self-evident um, mm -hmm. that this, these are parallels. Did you, have you gone any further in thinking about why? I mean, effectively what you have here is a playbook 
for oppression, mm-hmm. right? Here's, yeah. you know, take out this argument. And there's probably other arguments. Here's three arguments yeah. that are in yeah. the playbook for any yeah. oppressive yeah. regime. Yeah. Why is it that this is what, why, why is it that, that oppressive regimes use these arguments? Is it because there aren't better arguments for their, you know, for what they want to do? Israel, you know, Israel has been in a, in a position now for my entire lifetime and your entire lifetime of saying it wants peace and effectively pursuing greater Israel. Yeah, can't, yeah. You, you can't balance those. I mean, to me, I listen to some of, some of the arguments that Israel makes, and I think these are the arguments you make when you can't win the argument on the facts, so these are what you do. Um, can, can you talk about you know, the why a little bit? Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, I do think you, there's a way in which you have to convince, I think you have to dehumanize people um, in order to be able to get people to no longer see them as deserving the things that they would otherwise be inclined to think that human beings deserve uh, individually and collectively. And, and so I think these strategies of dehumanization um, uh, allow you to find excuses, you know, well, they're too pathological, you know, these people are too pathological, they're too dangerous um, uh, uh, to, for us to be able to, and I think that's, I, I think in, with different kinds of language, I think that it, this is something that you find in lots of different circumstances. So, so one word that doesn't get deployed in the, right now in the Ukrainian or Israeli context, but has been often used historically is communist. Right. I mean, you know, if you ask the South African government under apartheid why it couldn't allow black South Africans to speak, well, they say, well, because they will create the country will then become communist, um, uh, which will be horrific, you know. And so, uh, um, so I think communist. There, there are lots of different words that are used to dehumanize. One of the interesting words that Putin. This is another difference between I think the Russia case and the Israel case. One of the words that Putin is not using that much, you notice, is the word terrorist. Um, whereas, of course, that's a very important word that Israeli official discourse is used to talk about Palestinians. I, my hypothesis is, is because the Ukrainians still have their own regime, their own government, right? So, be, and terrorist is generally a word you apply to non-state actors. But I strongly, I bet, my prediction is that if they were, and I certainly, of course, hope they don't, but if they were to conquer Kiev and actually install their own government, at that point, the, the word terrorist would start to be used to apply to Ukrainians a lot. And in addition to that, that the Ukrainian form of resistance that we see now would probably expand into Russia itself, right? And so among the variety of different things that we see in common would be another one, which is that I would bet pretty strongly that if, the Rus- if there's an insurgency and the Russians have control of the state, probably the Ukrainians will take that violent resistance into Russia. Right, just like the IRA did when they blew up bomb thing, they blew up bombs in London, and just like Palestinian groups do when they go to Tel Aviv. Um, and so I think that um, there are there there are differences, but I think it's partly because of the particular stage that the conflict is in at this moment. Yeah, no, that that I, that, I think that's right. Um, you write in the article about depriving people of empathy, making a case that people are no longer deserving of, of empathy. Um, in this case, it's rights or empathy. Talking about resistance, I want to bring in two things that aren't in in your article. Yeah. Um, you know, this is, you, you write about the language, the arguments, framing paradigms, whatever. I want to talk about the actual way the international community is responding and how you see the difference with the outright um, celebrating and, and celebrating of Ukrainian resistance in ways that is 
quite extraordinary. I didn't expect that you would see any time in the post 9-11 war on terror world, you would see people celebrating the sharing of, you know, how to make, you know, improvised explosive devices and things, but it's seen now as heroic. And I mean, this is not to take anything away from the Ukrainian right to resist, but it is striking to see these things where, you know, I think for those of us who work on the Middle East and particularly Israel-Palestine, the idea of someone putting online the instructions for how to make an incendiary device, I mean, you'd expect to be arrested for material support for terror pretty quickly, regardless of how just your cause was. Can can you talk about that? Yeah, it's really, look, it's a reminder of something that there are other examples we could point to among the, you know, among them, the way we talk about the, the people who fought the American Revolution, right? That, um, that, that Americans in many contexts don't believe that your cause needs to be nonviolent in order to be just, right? In, to the contrary, Americans believe that if your cause is just, you have the right to use whatever mechanisms you need. Now, that said, I do think that, that, that there, is a, there is an important moral distinction between violence against civilians and violence against combatants. And I also think that nonviolence is preferable, you know, um, uh, um, but it's, uh, but in the Israeli case, one, for instance, one notices that it's not as if Israeli official discourse makes that distinction, right? If Palestinians, whether Palestinians use violence against Israeli if soldiers or Israeli civilians, it's all considered terrorism, right? Whereas now the, the our Ukrainians don't have a lot of access to Russian civilians. I think again, I would predict that w- that will that may change if this becomes a prolonged insurgency. Right now, they're using it against Israeli soldiers, right? But when they take out, you know, if a Ukrainian civilian throws a Molotov cocktail at a, at a, at a Russian soldier, they're not called a terrorist, right? Um, um, whereas in, if, if, if a Palestinian does that to an Israeli soldier, they're all called a terrorist. And I think that the, the I'm, again, my point is not that, that anything goes in a, in a, because you have a just cause. I think even within a just cause, there are more moral and less moral forms of resistance. I mean, if Ukrainians tie up and torture a Russian soldier, God forbid, right? That's a very, that's a bad thing. That's immoral, right? Um, Even though their broader cause is just. But what you see in the Palestinian case, I think again and again, which you don't, which is so different than the way you talk about Ukraine, is that the view is that unless the tactics are perfectly just, right? Unless the tactics uh, meet this very different threshold, right? And unless the taxes are completely nonviolent, right? Then it delegitimizes the entire cause, right? So it's in some ways the opposite. It's like from Ukraine, we say, because the cause is just, it justifies whatever they do. With the Palestinians, we say, if any of the tactics are unjust, by, then it delegitimizes the entire cause, right? And in fact, as you know, it's not even only with violence, right? Even if they resist nonviolently in the wrong ways, right? They resist nonviolently without accepting Israel's existence as a Jewish state, that is delegitimized, right? So it's, it's a radically different conceptual space that exists. And um, I, you know, it, it, you know, there's this, been this video of James Baldwin circulating, talking about how White people are are always, you know, historically been cele- you know, celebrated for doing things that black people are called terrorists and you know and criminals for doing. And I think that there's some of that. I think that the the innate sense of identification with a mostly white Christian people and you know comes into it. And of course, also the fact that it's happening to a U.S. adversary, right? Um, this resistance is opposed to happening to a U.S. ally using American-made weapons. So, so on that same, in that same vein, and yeah, I mean, we, you and I both 
follow this closely, the, the extent to which even nonviolent resistance by Palestinians is treated as terrorism. And actually, I mean, I, I've tracked and written about, I think you have as well, the 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 escalation of language around Palestinian right. tactics right. where, you know, right. you have journalistic terror and you have economic right. terror and you have right. diplomatic terror. I mean, everything right. a Palestinian does in trying to get their rights is considered a form of terror. Right. And, and in a context where under Israeli military laws, um, virtually anything that Israel doesn't want them to do can be framed as illegal, including, you know, gathering in more than X number of people or right. having a political meeting or holding up signs. I mean, it, it's, it's a very specific context where everything is basically a form of terror. Um, I want to talk about the nonviolent stuff. I, this is what you and I, Yusuf and I talked about, and I'd be curious about yeah. your views on it. It has been striking to me, and it was striking from right at the beginning. I, I do the, the monitoring of Congress, and when Republican members of Congress started tweeting out how it was vital that we adopt boycotts, divestment, and sanctions in that order, right. literally right. in that order, right. against Russia in support of right. Ukraine, and I thought, wow, so the language has gotten through, because I don't remember anyone using that little <laughs> those three words together in that order before the Palestinian BDS movement. Um, I mean, there really has been a, a wholesale um, embrace of these tactics and from a popular level, but also at a government level. Um, to Can you talk about how you see that as distinct from how it is viewed in the Palestine context low these many years in yeah. the efforts continuing to, to delegitimize, if not criminalize it? And can you talk about what you think this may mean going forward for Palestinian protests? Does this create potentially more space? Is it just utterly irrelevant because there, there will be an Israel exception or, or something else? I mean, I would hope so. Well, I'm not, I'm not that optimistic. I mean, I think that part of what the Ukraine, what the Russian invasion of Ukraine has done is that it has strengthened the instinct toward American exceptionalism, towards the idea that, that, that we're the good guys and, um, and we're fighting the bad guys. Um, and I think, um, and in this particular case, there is some truth to that, right? The Russians are the bad guys. I mean, we, and, and we are not the ones that are bombing Ukraine, right? We may have some culpability in terms of things that we did that were not, um, that, that were unwise in, in NATO expansion, but ultimately we're not the ones killing people. Um, and the the, pro, the 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 one of the fundamental challenges about being able to and so therefore again any any resistance is great uh, uh, including of course boycotts the 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 challenge is that in the Palestinian case it forces us to look inward um, at our own moral culpability in a way that is exactly the opposite Israel Palestine is kind of kryptonite to American exceptionalism because if if we are the good guys, how could it possibly be that the country we give the most military aid to is an apartheid state, right? It just, and, and that's very, very difficult. It's very difficult for your view of the, um, of the kind of the, you know, of the, of the goodness of the virtue of the United States, what people are, it's very difficult for your notion of the West, for certain people of the notion, which is a very Christian notion for some people, obviously for many Jews, it's very much bound up with our own sense of kind of virtue as a people and the virtue of the state that our people has created. So it requires an ability to uh, a kind of moral introspection and, um, and, and, and which is much, much more difficult than essentially saying, you know, Vladimir Putin is an evil guy, you know, which he is. What I would really love to hope is that is that that this moment in Ukraine 
that are rallying around Ukrainians can be for some people, help them make that move to which something which is, I think, more conceptually difficult for a lot of Americans. Um, um, but I don't know how successful that'll be. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, the conversations I've had, and I've been, you know, I, I reached out to you this morning to have this conversation because I've been following, you know, the various articles and, you know, there's, a, there feels like there's a certain amount of he doth protest too much when you see articles in the Jerusalem Post saying it is absolutely wrong to draw right. any parallels. Right. And then right. yesterday, the NGO Monitor came out with their own piece, um, damning um, all those who would say there's any parallels. I mean, even the fact of having to defend against the parallels, I think, does force people to think about it, if nothing else, to think about, um, you know, and maybe in, it reckon with their own rationalizations for why why this is different, which is, I've got to think, at least a healthy, a healthy project intellectually. Yeah. And I think the irony is the I think the only way the, the only way I think in, to undermine the analogy is to dehumanize Palestinians. To say, well, Ukrainians don't want to kill Russians. They don't want to drive the Russians into the sea. They don't want to blow up Russian, you know, they, you know, they're not murderers. They're but the, I think the irony is that in 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 basically responding to the analogy by dehumanizing Palestinians, because that's the only way you can say, well, the Ukrainians are decent people, the Palestinians are, you're actually, actually Absolutely. just replicating the analogy because that's exactly what the Russian government is doing to Ukrainians. Yeah, it, it actually proves the point. Right. Listen, I, I, I think this is, this is exactly what I was hoping on this conversation. I really appreciate it. For, for folks who are watching or listening, I want to give a shout out again to Peter's Peace and Jewish Currents, Justifications for Destroying a People. I also want to give a shout out to the podcast that I did with Yusuf Menayer a few days ago. You can find that on our website. And also Yusuf had a terrific piece in The Nation this week, uh, March 4th, um, called On Watching Ukraine Through Palestinian Eyes. And one other piece that I would highly recommend from Middle East Eye by Ala Tartir entitled How the Russia-Ukraine War Exposed European Hypocrisy Over Palestine. So those are all really, um, I think, really valuable um, contributions to people even examining their own thinking, whether you find it um, very logical to compare the two situations or incredibly distasteful. Either way, I think continuing to challenge ourselves is um, is the most important thing wherever you stand. So I hope this has been challenging and informative. I found this a very rich discussion as always. Thank you, Peter. Uh, Thank I you. think we'll, we'll end it here. Uh, for folks who are regular followers of Occupied Thoughts, thanks for joining us again. If you're new to Occupied Thoughts, you shouldn't be. You should subscribe, and that way you won't miss anything. You can subscribe via SoundCloud and podcast. Uh, iTunes and everywhere else. Check on our website. You can find the subscription information on there and you can find lots of other fantastic resources. So with that, I'm Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Thank you very much. And until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Mm -hmm.